Hi, I'm George A. Milton, America's Failure Coach. Welcome to the Failure is Not the Problem podcast. Listen, you know as well as I do that failure is a problem for most people. Why is that? In a single word, conditioning. Conditioning is simply training. You have been taught that failure has to be negative. I am here as your personal coach to help you relearn how to accept your failures and turn those experiences into positive mindset, change, and success. Look, motivation, empowerment, and inspirational stories, they're all well and good, but that's not what keeps us going. That's not what's going to change your life, and that's not what's going to move the needle in your health, your wealth, your happiness, your abundance, or your ability to be able to help other people make a difference. What keeps us going, what produces results in our lives is balance, not success alone. You have to develop a healthy balance between success and failure. It does not have to be one or the other. And when you can get yourself past the things that stop you and hold you back, that's when you'll thrive and that's when you will finally live a whole life. You'll be much happier. I will help you recondition your mindset by exchanging ideas and strategies to guide you in making transformation so that you can thrive. But most of all, I'm going to give you something every single episode which you can utilize to create change in your life. Failure is about learning how to embrace your challenges and taking 100% responsibility for your life. Do you want to elevate your perspective with failure so you can change your mindset to accept failure as positive experiences rather than negative expectations? When you fail, it's not the end, but the ultimate beginning. At my company, failure is not the problem. Our philosophy is this. Failure fuels. Failure is about innovation. Failure is about resilience. And failure is about growth. Learn how to embrace your setbacks as stepping stones to success. Learn, adapt, and triumph with the wisdom of failure by your side. Join us in rewriting the story of success where failure is a launchpad for greatness. Hello, everyone. I am your host, George A. Milton, America's Failure Coach. Today, I want to introduce you to an amazing person who is changing the planet within his chosen profession. But first, let me read off some statistics that I found from the National Institutes of Health, Veteran and Military Mental Health Issues of this year. By the way, September is Suicide Awareness Month. So it's very, very apropos to have Joan Martin online with us today here. So check these statistics out. One in five, the number of U.S. veterans who experience symptoms of PTSD in a given year. 24, the number of veterans who take their lives each day. Zero percent, the percentage of veterans who don't seek help for their mental health issues. We got to break that stigma, guys. Four percent, the portion of service members who report experiencing stress or anxiety during deployments. One, the average number of years it takes for veterans to seek help for PTSD symptoms. One in three, the number of veterans who struggle with depression, anxiety, or other mental health issues and conditions. One in four, the estimated prevalence of bipolar disorder among veterans highlighting the significance of the issue within our community. This week, we are featuring a veteran, an outstanding soldier, my former commandant from the United States Army War College, who has struggled himself with mental illness, specifically bipolar disorder. Unfortunately, this ultimately cost him his career. I want to introduce you guys to Major General Retired Dr. Greg F. Martin, a mental health advocate, speaker, and author who opens up about his remarkable story of battling mental illness and what we can do to help our veterans. Good afternoon, Star. How you doing? 
Hello, George. I'm doing great. And thanks so much for having me on this podcast. So it's an absolute honor. Absolute honor. I can't believe it's been so long since I last saw you. Last time I saw you, we were taking photos at my Army War College graduation. So it's really, really great to see you after all of this time. But hey, sir, why don't you just share just a little bit of your background with the audience so they kind of get to know who you are? Sure. I'm going to jump ahead in the story just to get it in sync with, you know, the purpose of the podcast. So after 35 years in the Army and the rank of two-star general, very successful, I went into full-blown mania, where I essentially went into a state of madness or insanity. And I was, shortly thereafter, I was fired from my job, forced to retire early, hospitalized. And, you know, I was really in the pit of bipolar hell, you know, just barely making it by. And I've come out of it. I came through it. And so out of that traumatic, you know, failure, if you will, I'm now living the most meaningful, purposeful life mission that I've ever had, including all that time in the Army. And my purpose is sharing my bipolar story to help stop the stigma, promote recovery, and save lives. So that's kind of where I am right now. But I should probably back up to the beginning and sort of tell you the rest of the story. Wow. Sir, without question, you're a tremendous blessing and a gift to not only you know, our military service, but to the world in general. This is really, really, really something that needs to be spoken about. I mean, I myself you know, had some concerns and some issues a long time ago when I was actually first time in combat. But moving forward, that was not the access that was required to be able to talk about these issues. So I'm really excited to hear your answers to some of the questions I want to present to you today. So let's go ahead and get at it, sir. Let me start off with this one here. Can you provide an overview of the challenges and issues you've observed regarding mental health support within the United States military? Yes. Let me give a little more on myself, and then I'll jump into that. So grew up near Boston, and um, all my life from teenage years on, tremendous energy, enthusiasm, drive, creativity. And it resulted in, you know, I was sort of the star in high school, student athlete leader. I was, you know, one of the top people at West Point in my class, graduated from Ranger School, top ratings all the way through my time in the Army. As a lieutenant, I ran seven marathons under three hours, including a 236. The Army sent me to grad school at MIT and gave me the mission to get one engineering degree, a master's. I got two master's and a PhD. And I tell you that not to brag, but to tell you that I was already on the bipolar spectrum going back to my teenage years. I had a bipolar brain. I was living with a mental condition called hyperthymia, which is having a near continual case of mild mania. So it's very low on the bipolar spectrum. So what this did is it boosted and enhanced me all through my military career, made me better than I otherwise would have been. And then my actual onset of bipolar disorder came in 2003 during the Iraq war, where the lengthy stress, thrill, euphoria, trauma of the war, it triggered my genetic disposition for bipolar disorder. And I went into mania in combat. And I felt like Superman, and my problem-solving skills were unbelievable, decision-making all over the battlefield, did better than I had ever done in my military career. And when we came home from Iraq, I fell into depression. And three times in the next several years, I went to the doctor and said, hey, I'm depressed. That's not normally like me. I'm energetic, enthusiastic. And all three times, the doctor said, oh, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. But they were dead wrong. I had bipolar disorder, and I was in these up-down swings. 
And so that continued. The bipolar was unknown, undiagnosed, unrecognized by anybody. And my manic highs started going higher and higher, my depressive lows lower and lower. I started to develop psychosis, which are delusions and hallucinations. And by 2014, I went into full-blown mania, which means a state of madness or insanity. And I can tell you what that looked like. But anyway, my boss was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I got an order on a Friday afternoon, report to the chairman on Monday morning, went in, saw him, he gave me a big hug. He said, Greg, I love you like a brother. You've done an unbelievable job at NDU, National Defense University. I give you a grade of A+, but your time at NDU is over. You have until 5 p.m. to resign or I'll fire you. And I'm ordering you to get a psychiatric exam this week. Three times I got diagnosed fit for duty. Nothing wrong. No bipolar, no nothing. And what that did is it convinced me I had a paranoid delusion that people were out to get me, get me fired, get me put in jail, where I'd be killed, lose all benefits from my wife. So that then, when I got three clean bills of health, it convinced me these people really were out to get me. So then I went into anger, bitterness, rage. And then about four months later, I crashed into horrible depression. I mean, just terrible, no energy, indecisive, couldn't make a decision, wanted to be alone, confused. And so I went back to the doctor and said, hey, there's something really wrong with my brain. And then they diagnosed me correctly with bipolar disorder type 1 and psychosis. But by then, I entered what I call two years of bipolar hell, which was absolutely awful. It was terrible. I was, you know, basically suicidal. Every day I wanted to die. I didn't want to live. I had these ideations, these hallucinations of being in prison, stabbed to death, and then dying in a pool of my own blood. I had another vision where this invisible force grabbed me and threw me underneath the rapid moving 18-wheeler, ripping me apart. Anyway, that led to hospitalization, ultimately led to prescription of lithium, the medication, which is a natural salt, by the way. And then I began my journey of recovery seven years ago. And I've been basically healthy with no real bipolar disorder, no relapses for the past seven years. So that's kind of my story. I can get into much more detail on any of that. But you had asked about how the military is doing with mental health. Yes, sir. Yeah, just trying to figure out, you know, I mean, I identify with everything you just said. And one of the things I want the audience to hear and understand, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, we tend to be proud folks, oftentimes is with a lot of bravado, but that's not what I heard when you gave a great rundown of your accolades, sir. And my daddy used to always say to me, he says, look, son, you know, if, if it's fact, it's not brag, sir. So these are things that you've actually earned. So thank you for your service to our nation. So these are awards that are actually earned. I didn't hear just bragging at all, just a matter of fact of sharing some of the accolades and some of the achievements you've earned. But yeah, just wanted to get you to provide some overview to some of the challenges and issues that you've observed regarding mental health within the confines of the military. What an amazing rundown you've actually given. So obviously there were some issues and some concerns that you probably actually saw from challenging perspectives, sir. Yes, I would say that the military has come light years forward since 9-11. If you go back to 9-11, we were still not letting people serve for having PTSD. Now there's plenty of people with PTSD serving in the military. We didn't let people serve if they had depression and needed to take medication. Now we have plenty of people with depression. We didn't let anybody with bipolar disorder serve, and now we have plenty of people with bipolar disorder type 2, which is in many ways a less extreme form than what I have, bipolar 1. So they're being allowed to serve. Same thing with traumatic brain injuries, moral injury, survivor's guilt. 
So the military is now much more accepting of you know, people with mental health conditions. The other thing I would say is the military has spent a lot of money hiring experts from the medical profession, and we've pushed psychiatrists down to the division level, which is way lower, closer to troops than they used to be. We're pushing mental health therapists down to the battalion level, which is you know really down where the rubber meets the road. The military is spending quite a bit more time on training and educating the force on you know what are the basic mental illnesses, the mental health problems, and what do the symptoms look like? And then putting buddy systems in place where people, trusted advisors, trusted colleagues, can then talk straight with their battle buddy and tell them, hey, I'm observing these things in you. Let's go get it checked out. I'll go with you. And then once they get seen at this low level, this information it may or may not be put in their official medical records. I mean, it's up to the discretion of the healthcare provider. So a lot of people are able to seek help, get help, doesn't go in their record, and they can get the problem addressed at the lowest level. So I would say there's a real effort in the military to normalize mental health, to put it on the same level as physical health. Are we there yet? No, definitely not. We have still a long way to go because a lot of people still have the stigma when it comes to mental health, you know, which people go into embarrassment and shame and they don't go get help, which is really unfortunate. And it's based really on ignorance, the stigma. It's based on the belief that it's if you get a mental illness, it's your fault. You're to blame. You don't have the willpower or the strength or the character. And we now know that is scientifically not true that mental illness is just as physiological as diabetes, cancer, heart disease. And there's no stigma surrounding those physical diseases, so neither should there be around mental illness. You know, sir, I was going to actually talk about that. In fact, I was going to just ask, you know, how the stigma surrounding mental health within the military impacted soldiers' willingness to actually seek help and what role the leadership has played. Because I remember the first time that I came back from combat, and I've been in actual force on force five different times, even as a logistician. The first time was when I was a platoon leader, Operation Day Sunday to Shill. And you know, coming back from that force on force involvement, I knew something <laughs> something wasn't right. My wife was telling me something, hey, look, something's not right here. And I didn't really pay much attention to it initially. But then I got to a point to where I thought, you know what, you know, she may be under something. And I approached my chain of command and said, look, I think I need to go over to mental health. And immediately my boss says, Hey, look, dude, if you want to save your career, you better not even think about doing something like that. And I grew up just thinking that my entire career. And there were multiple times where I wanted to actually go, but the stigma associated with that just would not, I just would not go because of that sort of situation. So I agree. I think it's gotten a lot better. And since all of this now, I've always talked to folks about, I think that regardless of whether you're deploying into combat or taking a command, because of the stress and the mental capacity that, you know, officers and senior non-coms have to be a part of in the chain of command, I just think that anybody that's taking command, and if you're a senior non-com supporting that commander, you should probably go and actually get evaluated just as a way to, as you said, sort of normalize it. Because if our commanders are going and our senior non-coms are going to get this, then obviously it's okay to do. So I think that's a great point that you actually make. Can you share any stories or personal experiences that highlight the consequences of inadequate mental health within the military and the role leadership plays in those situations? Well, I think that the suicides that happen are, in many respects, indicative of somewhat of a failure. And I'm not going to say it's a total failure. I'm not going to blame anybody. But, you know, the number of suicides we have per day, you know, like since 9-11, 
we've lost somewhere roughly 7,000 troops in combat, and we've lost over 30,000 due to suicide. Think about that. And so typically, if you go backward, if you go from the left of the suicide itself, what you often have is a person with, not always, but often a person with some sort of mental health condition, something that's weighing them down mentally. And, you know, if that situation was dealt with right from the get-go, maybe we could prevent a lot of these suicides. The second step in the suicide chain is often, not always, but often a severe shock to the person's mental well-being. Things such as, you know, a spouse leaves them, they lose their job, their finances are ruined, they get in legal trouble, they get in a violent physical encounter or a car crash. Sometimes they're raped or sexually assaulted. And so what this does is it makes their underlying mental condition even worse. So it then gets more intense. And then oftentimes the person turns to alcohol or drugs, which then it makes it that much easier to go the final step and commit suicide. And then oftentimes that, after they start drinking heavily or taking drugs, then the final step is suicide. So think about how many different points there are to intervene. At the beginning, if we had detected that this person was dealing with some issues, you know, then when the big shock comes, if they had had a buddy system where the battle buddy said, hey, you know, that's a really big deal that, you know, you lost your job or you lost your finances or your wife left you or, you know, your brother was murdered. Let's talk about it. Let me get you to a counselor, someone that can understand these situations and give you a different way of thinking about it. And then the third thing would be once they start drinking and taking drugs, if they had a battle buddy or a partner or somebody close to them who could say, hey, this is not good. You don't normally do this. Let's go get help. And then finally, the final step would be if you see someone in that bad of a situation, you should do everything you can to separate them from their firearms. Because the vast majority of men, when they commit suicide, it's with a gun. And if you can just get a little bit of breathing space so that the gun's not right there, it's maybe locked in a gun closet or someone has it somewhere else, somebody else's house, you could deter the suicide just by buying that little bit of time to get them to come down from the ledge. And so those are all some of the things that you know we could do better, that we maybe aren't doing well enough. Again, it all comes back to understanding these symptoms, understanding what are the mental conditions we're dealing with what do the symptoms look like? Let's have a battle buddy, a trusted, you know, peer advisor. So those are all things that I think that we need to do better. Oh wow, fantastic, sir. So you know, a couple of things here. One is that I know that yourself and I were both former military members, but I want everybody out in the audience to understand that this is not only a military issue. This is within the world at large, and specifically, oftentimes it not only impacts the soldiers, but it also impacts our loved ones and our family members and those who are part of our networks and whatnot. So shaming and blaming, you know, that's not what we're trying to do here. We just want to, on this podcast today, is to raise awareness in terms of, you know, some of these things that, you know, soldier members and their families actually deal with. So if anyone's listening, they're thinking, Lord, I mean, these are just two military guys. No, 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 we're people first, right? That's just kind of how it works, just like everybody else, even though we've actually served and we're sharing a lot of stories from a military background. So I just want to give a caveat there so folks who are tuned in, you know, look at this, not only specifically from the military angle and something we've shared, but just generally speaking, in those who are hindered by a lot of the trauma and things going on in their lives. 
And what about from a systematic standpoint, sir? Are there any systematic or structural issues within the military that hinder our soldiers' access to mental health services? And how has the leadership addressed or failed to address these issues? I think the number one issue, both in the military and in the civilian world, is stigma. Stigma is what deters and keeps people from going and getting medical help. That's the single biggest one. And so I think the military is trying to reduce stigma, trying to educate people that mental health and mental illness is not the person's fault, that it's physiologically based. But we still have a long way to go. And, you know, the thing about it is these mental illnesses, they touch everybody on the planet. You know, one in five, 20% afflicted with a mental illness, and the other 80% are affected by virtue of being family, friend, work colleagues. So 100% are touched. And the bad news, the really bad news is bipolar disorder and other mental conditions, they can be devastating and destroy your marriage, your family, your career, lead to addiction, homelessness, incarceration, death, suicide. That's the terrible, terrible news. But the good news is that if a person goes in and gets medical help, every one of these conditions is treatable, every single one. And so I'm a great example of hope because, you know, I'm living a happy, healthy, purposeful life. And so can everybody else that went through, you know, the hell of some serious mental illness. Wow. So look, for me, in the brand that I promote and trying to grow, you know, from this failure piece is one of the big ticket items for me is that single word stigma. I talk about that a lot when it comes to failure and how folks aren't really fearful of failure. They're fearful of the stigma associated with the failure. How are people going to think about them? What are they going to say about them? How are they going to respond to them? And what I did is you and I both know we have a lot of acronyms in the military, specifically the Army. So I come up with an acronym for the word stigma. And it's shameful thoughts I give myself anxiously. I'll say that again. Stigma is simply shameful thoughts I give myself anxiously based upon how folks are going to respond to those. And in the same way that, you know, failure has that sort of remnant, obviously, I can tell you personally, so does this. The one thing that kept me from going and getting treatment was the stigma. I mean, even from the standpoint of multiple times I approached folks. But as you said, I mean, I was so focused. I could compartmentalize the things that were creating the problems for me off work. On work site, man, I was I was after it. Combat, I was after it. But it was during those quiet times, those times of solitude, those times away in which I struggled a bit in wanting to actually go and get the help. The, the one single thing that kept me from doing so was not only the threat of potential you know, career-ending responses to that, but the fact that the stigma associated with it and how my peers and those who led me and those I was trying to lead were going to feel about me if I'd actually broached that topic over there. So how do you think the, the military leaders can promote a culture of openness and you know, support regarding mental health while still maintaining readiness and effectiveness in their armed forces? That's who we are and that's what we do. Well, it starts at the top. Like before this podcast, I was on a podcast with the Army Futures Command, and their three-star general invited me to give my story to all his leaders. And there was a tremendous Q&A discussion. So I think leaders taking the initiative to talk about it. The Navy has invited me to, you know, big fleets in Jacksonville and San Diego to give talks. The Army to multiple commands and bases. The Navy invited me to talk to all their new two-stars, all their new one-stars and SESs and command master chiefs. So I think that's a good example of starting at the top with the leadership, you know, that we're talking about this stuff and getting examples and how to think about it. But I also think 
starting at the bottom is really important. You know, there should be a block on mental well-being in basic training. The lowest ranking soldiers, airmen, seamen, Marines need to hear it and understand how it applies. I mean, we're not going to make them a psychiatrist. Just give them the same thing analogous to physical first aid, you know, call it mental first aid or brain first aid. The other thing I will tell you is there are some phenomenal examples of leaders who have put together programs and put them in place at various bases. I'll tell you one. There's a lieutenant general now called D.A. Sims, Douglas A. Sims. He's a three-star, but when he was a two-star, he commanded Fort Riley and the 1st Infantry Division. He put together a program called Victory Wellness, and it's total wellness, total well-being with a major mental health, emotional health component to it. And so he built this thing, and he had had real emotional, mental issues after you know one of his deployments. And so he built this thing, and there's a great article about it in Military Times about two or three years ago. So if you Google General D.A. Sims, Victory Wellness, Fort Riley, Kansas, it'll pop up and it explains everything. But it's still going strong at Fort Riley. And, you know, the troops, everybody has bought into it. Sims collected data and he shows real reductions in suicides, mental health problems, lost work time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like a best practice that any leader out there could pick that up and put it in place. That is amazing. So I've, I've taken notes here. I'm going to definitely look at that and potentially reach out to Adrian Simpson and just kind of see if there's anything we actually need to partner to work together to actually bring light to this. And I think this is going to be helpful for not only those out there in the hemisphere, but my kids are going to be hearing a conversation for the first time in their entire lives in regarding to this mental health issue that I've actually struggled with for a number of years. So I really appreciate your Ability to give me the freedom to talk about that because I have a son who's about to be promoted to captain in the Army right now. I have a daughter who just recently got promoted to specialist right now. And obviously, we want the best for all of our soldiers. But when it comes close to home, it's important for them to actually hear about these things too, sir. So I really appreciate that intel you just gave back. But I've got a couple more questions, and I'm going to let you go. I know you got a busy, busy day, Phil Martin. But I think these two are a couple of questions I really wanted to get to. And I know that when it comes to mental health issues, you know, it's not an isolated situation from the standpoint of any particular country or organization. So as far as lessons, you know, that might have been learned, are there lessons that can be learned from other organizations or countries that have successfully addressed mental health issues among the military personnel and lessons that we might apply in the United States military? Well, I think probably the leading countries in understanding and dealing effectively with mental illness are probably the United States, Canada, the UK, maybe Australia, and then some of the other Western European countries are really way ahead of, you know, most other regions in the world who are way behind. I work with a group of Kenyans, and it's just a nightmare what these people with bipolar disorder living in Kenya, what they go through. I mean, it's jaw-dropping how badly they're treated. And that's the same way in lots and lots of regions of the world. So, you know, although the United States has much to improve on, and, you know, the access and affordability to mental health care is not what it should be. Stigma is still alive and strong. I think we're probably about as good as it gets, although, you know, Canada, the UK, Australia may be ahead of us. Wow, outstanding. 
So last question would be this, sir, and I'm loving this. What advice or recommendations do you have for soldiers who may be struggling with mental health issues and are unsure about seeking help within the military system? I think it's incredibly important that these soldiers, these troops are made, it's made okay to be able to go and seek out help. So what advice would you give them? I would tell them that if they have some sort of mental health condition, you know, whatever, depression, bipolar, or they suspect they have a condition, and they can talk to their battle buddy about this, but if in doubt, go check it out, go get help, go get looked at and evaluated. I know there's a lot of fear that because of the stigma, they're afraid that it might hurt them, they might not get promoted, they might not get a security clearance, you know, they might get medically boarded. Well, the fact of the matter is, your life is much bigger than the military. Most people, from what I can see, do not get medically boarded. They do not get their security clearance denied. They do not lose a promotion. You know, some do, but not all and not most. Like I talked about, we've come so far since 9-11. So I would tell you, go in and get checked, because if you don't, it could cost you your life, your marriage, your career, your finances. You could end up in jail, suicidal. Taking care of your mental well-being and your health is probably more important than even taking care of your physical health. And it's certainly more important than a career in the military because you can always get another job or another career or another profession, but you can't get another you if you end up dead. Wow, sir, that gives me chills when you actually said that. I am really, really appreciative of you coming on the show today. I'm just really hoping that the folks who are listening here is that you are paying really, really close attention to this formidable, outstanding soldier warrior here. He has taken it upon himself to change the planet by sharing uh, very personal experiences within the confines of not only the military, but within the confines of his life and those that he loves within the confines of his family. So please pay real, real close attention to what has actually been said. We're here to talk about these issues because we really want to help. This podcast is really about helping and serving those who are struggling with a number of issues out there. And Joe Martin, you have brought light to a major, major topic that needs to be discussed. So before signing off, sir, I'm going to give you one last opportunity to make a plea or to make a statement or just guidance and direction and advice you would like to do so. Okay. First, it was a great honor to be on, and I thank the listeners as well. If you found this topic interesting, I would encourage you to check out my book. It's called Bipolar General, My Forever War with Mental Illness. It was just came out on the street two weeks ago. You can order it through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Naval Institute Press. You can go to my website, www bipolargeneral.com. The reviews on the book are phenomenal. Amazon has already given it a label of bestseller after just two weeks. All the feedback I've gotten has been nothing but positive. The other thing I would just like to say, and this goes back into the body of the talk, is I'm very impressed with the professional medical community. And the thing I'm so impressed with is in the last couple of years, they've embraced this idea of expert doctors and scientists and psychiatrists partnering together closely with what they call an expert by lived experience, which I am, because you know most doctors have never actually undergone bipolar disorder. And I'm not a doctor, but I, I know what it is. And so this is so powerful. I think it's going to result in real increases in knowledge and treatment. And I've partnered with a professor 
Alex Liao at University of Illinois in Chicago. And together, she is unbelievable. She read the book, said it was the best book she's ever read on mental illness or bipolar. She's using the book to teach medical students. She brought me in as a guest lecturer to all the medical students, the aspiring psychiatrists. She's lined up two podcasts and then another talk where I'm going to talk to the entire med school and the hospital and more. You know, I'm on the board for some of her big research projects. And I say that because, you know, this professor is a leader, a visionary, committed to finding new and better and innovative solutions to bipolar disorder and other mental illnesses. So I just wanted to tell the audience that because me, I am just so impressed with the medical community that I just wanted to get that last tidbit in. So that's outstanding. Oh, I got chills right now. That is, I mean, just absolutely amazing. You are doing something that is unprecedented. I mean, it is without a question, unprecedented. You know, I'm always reminded of the scripture where it says, for such a time as this, and it is incredibly important, sir, for you to be where you are, doing the kinds of things you're doing for such a time as this. Thank you so much, John Martin. I salute you for the honor of coming on and sharing with my audience an amazing story. I know that they are going to be empowered to go out and to seek the type of help by which they themselves needed the encouragement to be able to go and do so. So thank you, sir. All the blessings to you and your family, and uh, hope to see you down the road. Thank you so much, George. Really appreciate it and enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Failure is Not the Problem podcast. If you enjoy what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas, or you might want to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly at georgeamilton.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the other side.